This is an RNZ podcast. Kia ora and welcome to the best of first up for Friday the 11th of June. Call Katrina Bat and Aho. In the pod today, the government wants all of our new vehicles to be electric by 2035. We'll ask a couple of experts how. The perks of dining out if you forfeit your phone for the meal. A conspiracy of ring-tailed lemurs arrive at Wellington Zoo and a long-awaited return to the North Island of one of its earliest and clumsiest residents, the grey-faced petrel or northern mutton bird. But first, we begin with a sobering warning for New Zealand. COVID-19 cases are climbing in Taiwan after an outbreak was discovered there in mid-May. For the past 18 months, Taiwan had kept COVID-19 at bay with only 1,200 total cases and a handful of deaths. Now, the island nation has more than 11,000 COVID-19 cases and the death toll there had risen to 308 on Tuesday. Our host Nathan Radere got the latest from our Taiwan correspondent Cindy Sue. We just had the uh, daily 2 p.m. local time press conference held by the Central Epidemic Command Center, which is led by the Health Minister Chen Shizhong. And again, you know, we, they announced more than 200 cases, new cases today, and it's been like that for the past few days. I mean, it's it used to be even higher, around uh, five to six hundred a day. So, you know, some might say that there's a declining trend in new cases, but it's too soon to tell. So, and again, every day we're seeing about, you know, two dozen to even more deaths. And it's quite troubling for Taiwan, especially because it had considered itself and it was considered by the world to be one of the most successful places in uh, controlling the spread of the pandemic just, just up until recently, up until April. So the, all of this has changed in just a matter of weeks. Well, it's, it's haunting for us because we were in a similar situation as you. Like, we, we got our freedom back to be able to walk around and do things. And often it was like, you know, well, there's you guys and there's Taiwan and there's, you know, Vietnam as well. What happened in Taiwan that caused this outbreak to happen? Well, it, it's a combination of perhaps being overly confident and over-reliant on the uh, policy that had worked last year, which is uh, closing borders quickly and effectively, and also quarantining anybody coming back in a really strict manner for 14 days. Now, some of that, uh, some of these policies were uh, eased for certain people, such as pilots of the airlines. Now, they still had to fly international flights to transport a lot of the cargo that Taiwan ships to other countries because it is, after all, a trading-dependent economy. So the government had relaxed the quarantine rules for the pilots allowing them to only be quarantined for three days after returning. And the argument was that if they had required them to quarantine any longer, there wouldn't be enough pilots for the airlines to continue these uh, cargo flights. And some of them were passenger flights, too. So um, they relaxed the rules, you know, making sure that the the pilots were, um, you know, in their quarantine hotels. But what happened was some of the pilots still came back with the virus. You know, and they were in special hotels overseas, but, you know, we don't know whether any of the pilots snuck out of the hotels and mm. whether they were maybe infected by the environment or even, you know, any, any other reason. They were flying basically international flights everywhere, you know. So um, so the pilots' infections led to more infections in the community. And there were also cases uh, involving so-called hostess tea houses in a, a district of Taipei, you know, with um, where, the you know, older men would go to 
uh, by sex from hostesses. And, and these spread, you know, like wildfire um, throughout Taipei and also in New Taipei City. Um, so, you know, that's one of the reasons why we have so many cases now. But the other reason is, is that um, Taiwan had all along been very reluctant to do mass testing, unlike other countries like South Korea. So it had avoided that. I, and there was uh, the argument that perhaps the government just wanted to maintain the semblance of the, uh, the island being very successful and didn't want to, you know, test people to, and, and come up with a lot more cases. But that has turned out to be a sort of a mistaken policy because apparently there were a lot of people who had mild or no symptoms, and those cases have been spreading. You know, they've been spreading the virus. So now we have so many cases, more than twelve thousand cases, in just uh, the past um, six weeks. So it's since mid-April. It's amazing. So what was happening with your vaccine program before this breakout, or or even now? Like, can you tell me about where you were beforehand and are vaccinations there now and ongoing? Yes, well, that's another problem. The, the government had basically um, not been very anxious about getting vaccines. They, they, did, they do say that they have been asking the uh, manufacturers since last year. Um, but they, they weren't that concerned about vaccines because, you know, Taiwan has so few cases. You know, it, it just didn't seem like a, a, a high priority for the government or the people. And in fact, when it did get some vaccines, AstraZeneca vaccines, you know, very few people wanted to take them. And the government did not actually uh, actively promote the vaccines. So until recently, with this new outbreak, this huge outbreak, the government is now frantically trying to get more vaccines. But it needs 30 million uh, doses to uh, achieve herd immunity. And so far, it's only got 3 million doses. That's our correspondent in Taiwan, Cindy Su. A New Zealand restaurant chain is offering 15% off for customers, but there's a catch. Madam Wu founder Fleur Colton is happy to see diners have a proper experience, but says the perk comes with an old-fashioned twist. She told our reporter Kamina Blewett what's involved. In April, we did a promo where if you came in store and surrendered your cell phone into a box on your table, your entire table did it, and you didn't tamper with that box for your entire meal. We gave you 15% off your food bill. And it was so successful that we've bought it back for June. Talk me through what inspired the idea. Look, I think brainstorming ideas, and as I said, I think we've all been in that situation. You know, I know with teenagers, it's just, oh, would you just get off the phone? Or can we have a conversation without the phone in your lap? And Snapchat going off and we also see within the restaurants some of our guests come in and it's really hard to even get an order out of them because they're so busy on their phones and often during the meal look it's great for us I know they're taking photos and sending Instagram posts about us and we love all of that but this is just a bit of a tongue-in-cheek look come in and relax and put your phone down have a little bit of social media you know, holiday for an hour and enjoy the meal from us. What's the response been like from the clientele so far into this promo? Honestly, we've had a huge influx of people for June already, Um, you know, coming in and going, right, we want to put the phones in the box and all sorts of different people, people with teenagers, groups of friends laughing about it. You know, it's become a bit of a challenge. Do you think we can do it? 
are we up for it? And what have your frontline people said about it? You know, what have they been observing? Look, they've just really enjoyed it. It's, as I said, it's been a bit of fun and the customers are taking it in the right way. And look, I think the staff feel that the people that are putting their phones in the box are having a really good time and having a bit more of a social time with each other. They've sort of noticed that people are staying a bit longer, maybe having a little bit more to eat and a few more drinks. So really making a bit more of a night out of it rather than just head into the phone and a quick feeding and out the door. And I suppose, what do you guys hope to ultimately achieve with this? I don't think it, when we started it, that there was an ultimate achievement. You know, we're a small business that has restaurants throughout New Zealand, but personally, I know that I love if I put my phone away when I get home and don't look at it until I go to bed or don't look at it until I actually get to the office in the morning. You actually feel like you've had a bit of a, a relax. So we're just doing our part, doing our bit. That was Madame Wu founder Fleur Colton. Who doesn't love a lemur? Nobody, that's who. Harmony Neal is the primate team leader at Wellington Zoo and recently the zoo welcomed a group of ring-tailed lemurs. Nathan asked Harmony where the new conspiracy of lemurs came from. We've recently received four females from Hamilton Zoo. They arrived just over a month ago and moved into their new habitat about a week ago. So they're still getting to know the space and they're exploring. Do they travel well? I mean, what did, did they fly down or are they, is it a road trip? Because they're um, nice and little, they can uh, come down on the plane. Hmm. Yeah, nice and nice and easy for them. They're trained to go into their little um, travel crates, and then they yeah fly down. <laughs> That's amazing. So when they come down, even though they've been within New Zealand, do, do, how do you introduce them? And I ask you this because see, we just got a kitten, and they were saying you know you've got to be careful how you introduce it to the others and that. So how does it go when you're introducing lemurs to each other? Yes. Yeah, so luckily, um, Hamilton Zoo had them together before they sent them to us. Hmm. So the four, two of them are twin sisters um, and the other two are half sisters. So they all kind of know each other anyway and they all got along when we let them out. You just kind of see how they get along and, and keep an eye on them. Mm. Um, and now that we've let them out into the nice new habitat as well, just uh, for the first few days, keep a really close eye, see how they're exploring the space and how comfortable they're feeling. Tell me about that new habitat. Like what's their new, what's their new place like? Yeah, so they've got a... Um, fantastic nice big new space at the back of the zoo yeah it's yeah it, well it's it's uh, nice new we've set it up especially for them so they've got a few little huts some trees some ropes um lots of grass to explore in uh, because they do like to spend a lot of time on the ground as well mm. um, a nice heated den for those slightly cooler days in wellington and then there is a second habitat that's going to be built kind of where people can't see them and, and that's just as a secondary space in case we need it in the future. When I go to Auckland Zoo, uh, one of the cool things is to try and get there early because I want to see the booming of the Siamang gibbons. But that wonderful thing that lemurs do, well, they all kind of, it's like they're doing yoga or zen pose. They kind of sit on this branch because they, they're sitting there in the sun. Have you noticed your new lemurs starting to do things like that? Do they sunbathe yet? A couple of them have started. They're, they're still a little bit weary of the space at the moment, oh, okay. but they certainly will. 
Lemurs love to. It's called sun worshipping. Right. Yeah. Um, yes, yeah sit looks... there and yep, and <laughs> they'll they'll follow the sun around all day, and the the new space they're in gets heaps of sun all day, so they'll love it. I don't know if I'm shrouded by uh, or what's influenced so much by Madagascar or whatever, but I just find them they're just characters. I just, I quite often mean to just walk past and then I stand looking at lemurs for ages. So tell me about the personalities that that you've noticed out of them, and do you have a favourite yet? I'm, I'm still getting to know them. Don't have a favourite yet, but the, you can definitely see all four personalities coming out. Some are a little bit braver than others. Some kind of just if if, if the older ones are kind of exploring, it's like okay, I'll, I'll go with you, but only as long as you're there. <laughs> so they they do like to stick together as well, which is it's quite normal. That that's what they do in the wild as well. Yeah, is it hard to feed a lemur? Like what do you what do you give them? They're not too bad. Um, so they they eat a variety of stuff, kind of leaves seeds, berries, fruit, veggies. Here in uh, at Wellington, we um, bring over a special palate for them as well, make sure they get all the vitamins and minerals that they need. Um, they will eat small amounts of insects and things like that, but they, they try to stick to kind of the, the more vegetative stuff. That was Harmony Neal, and you can see her and the lemurs when you move it, move it to Wellington Zoo. And sticking with animals, a good news story now for a bird that was once driven off New Zealand's mainland by introduced pest species. The grey-faced petrel, or northern mutton bird, has returned to the Waitakere Ranges thanks to years of pest control work by volunteers and conservationists. James Russell is a conservation biologist from the University of Auckland who's been working with these quirky birds for 15 years. Nathan asked him how prevalent these birds were in the North Island before being driven off. So the grey-faced petrel, or the oi, was the northern mutton bird and it was found throughout the upper half of the North Island. There wouldn't have been a part of the coastline where you wouldn't have been able to find it. But due to the history of human use and particularly introduced predatory mammals, they've been completely relegated out to our remote offshore islands where there's still a few hundred thousand of them, but the only place you can find them now is on those offshore islands except for these these colonies that are coming back to the mainland now. Do we know which had a bigger effect on the population, like the, the mammals or people going... I'm going to eat that. We're not entirely sure, and so we've got a new project starting up that's going to try and look at that cultural history of use um, against the history of the impacts of introduced mammals. But we're we're fairly certain it was the introduced mammals that um, were the coup de grace and, and really took them out from the last refuges uh, across the mainland. Okay, so you've you've got something like this trying to revive any species is quite hard. Tell me about the work that's gone into doing this. Predator Free New Zealand has really motivated community groups to get into backyard trapping and as a side effect of that we suddenly realised that these greyface petrel were coming back uh, to the coastlands of the Waitakere Ranges and so the community groups working all around there kept finding maybe one or two birds that had been holding on for decades <laughs> were suddenly exploding in numbers into tens or twenties or forties uh, in these colonies across the headlands. So there's quite a there's a viable population up at the Waitakere. They've really turned into a viable population now. If you head over to some of the the key points like Tewaha and Piha yeah. or Fotapu uh, on a on an autumn night, you'll have these birds uh, dripping out of the trees. Really, uh, they crash in at night and just curl up and crash down onto the ground. And it's it's raining birds down on you like it does <laughs> on the offshore islands. So when you say crash, I thought you were sort of just using it colloquially, but they, they do, don't they? Is that right? They... It is literally a crash. Their technique is to to find the forest on the cliff tops and they crash into it. And and then just close their wings in. And I've been to one of the Red Mercury Islands and the birds will just be dropping out of the trees at a rate of one every few minutes around you. It's just absolutely insane. And that's really what we want to restore the mainland back to because that's really what it would have been like uh, all along. What, what are the little odd bits of their character that they have that's quirky? 
So they are a really quirky bird. New Zealand um, and Auckland in particular is the seabird capital of the world. We have more species of breeding seabird species uh, than anywhere else in the world. And these are Procellaris. They're nocturnal burrowing seabirds. So they actually, they only come in at night, which is why many people hadn't even noticed they were coming back. And when they come back at night, they actually dig burrows underground. The bird's about the size of a, a kind of gull. And it digs these holes underground and then it uh, moves into these holes underground in June with their partners and they lay one egg and that egg hatches in August and it doesn't actually uh, fledge the chick until Christmas. So it's kind of like a Christmas bird for us <laughs> up here. And then the, um, that chick leaves and then they start the whole cycle again the following autumn. What do they look like? Like, how do I know that? I, is, is that a gull out there, or is that a, what, what is that out there? The bird itself actually feeds um, off the continental shelf, so you never even see them during the day. Just as it's getting pitch black, you'll start to hear them come back in at night with a and they're a, a, a jet black grey bird, and the grey faces they have a kind of little light grey beard. Yeah. And um, yeah, they're about the size of a gull, and they have this really long hooky beak which they use for picking up their their squid and their fish and things at sea. <laughs> it's amazing. So. Look, this is around Auckland. We've got a bird capital there. You've got the Waitakere's where things are going well, which is pretty cool. If if we implement the same program, will it work throughout the rest of New Zealand? Yeah, so Waitakere's isn't the only place these birds are coming back. They've got a colony down at... Uh uh, down in New Plymouth, which is doing really well, and a colony at Tauranga, and a colony down at Raglan, and up at North Cape, and uh, and uh, Mangawai Heads there. They've got mm. lots of these birds coming back all over the North Island of the country just due to these predator-free New Zealand efforts. So it's really amazing to see how just a little bit of work brings back these seabird species that, although they're, they're not really threatened with extinction, they're really extinct to us because we don't get the cultural practice of having them in our backyards and seeing them and knowing they're a part of our, our avifauna. You know, I've, I've learned more about mutton birds in the last few minutes with you than I have in my entire life. I, I, you know, because I, I knew that people had eaten them beforehand. I think people still do. I didn't realise the nocturnal stuff, the feeding off the continental shelf. I mean, this is amazing. So do they tend to want to live where other seabirds live? Uh we're actually finding, as for the first time we kind of restore these wreckages of avifaunas, that when we get multiple seabirds back, they all have their kind of preferred habitats, their preferred niches. And what's interesting about the grey-faced petrel is they really like the kind of semi-steep headlands, which also were a lot where a lot of the um, archaeological past sites were placed. So we're, we're looking at exploring right. with our new project, again, managing that conflict. How do you protect past sites with their rich archaeological history, but at the same time understand that this is the preferred habitat with the seabirds, where they want to land here and dig it up and churn it up and start their nests. Well, look, James, thank you. It's been fascinating uh, finding out about this. Thank you for all your work, and I look forward to hearing more about it. No, it's wonderful. We've got a, a short documentary on the collaborative work we've been doing on this for the last 15 years. It's available now for people to watch online. That's James Russell, and that link is on our Facebook webpage. The government wants to have completely stopped bringing in diesel and petrol cars in the country by no later than 2035 to help us meet our emission reduction targets. But is it going to be possible for everyday New Zealanders to have gone electric in that time? Nathan spoke with two gentlemen to shed some light on the bumps we'll face on the road to achieving this. Craig Pomare from the Motor Trade Association and car dealer and EV aficionado Matt Foote. Matt, I'm going to go with you uh, first. What are the prices that people are looking at for a decent electric vehicle just at the moment? Nathan, we're talking about a car with range. Um, they sort of go up to $80,000 for something that gets around 450 k's of range at the moment, but as low as 50000 for a pure EV. Is that, is that brand new or second-hand? Uh, brand new. Uh, that's that's the latest models. Okay, what, what about the second-hand market? What's that looking? Because a lot of people might have heard that and gone, oof, that's a lot. 
second-hand market and the used Japanese market, you know, can start from ten thousand dollars for a, such as a Nissan uh, Leaf, etc. Okay, and and from what you can see so far, is there appetites for these electric vehicles? Incredible interest in the EV vehicles, and I think everyone has a stance on the, the climate change, etc., and want to be part of it. Right. Craig, um, your organisation, MTA, uh, brings new vehicles into the country. So what sort of proportion of our new cars are EVs at the moment? Oh, G'day, Nathan. Well, we actually bring in about, and the numbers change a bit, it's about 5,000-odd a year. Some new, some used, but every year half of what we bring in is new, half of what we bring in is used anyway, across all cars. Right. So, I mean, the government wants most of our new um, cars to be EVs by uh, 2032 and, and 2035 at the latest. Do you think that's realistic? We'd love to, uh, because the more we can bring in, the more we can sell. And our members would love to sell them and fix them. Um, but from what we're seeing, we, we would struggle to see that by, you know, one of the dates they've got is 2029, that half of all the cars coming in, uh, which would be about 150,000, would need to be pure EV. Um, we think they should open their minds a bit to some other options. If we can get them, great, but global production at the moment means we just don't think that's likely. Right, OK, so it's it's what we can get in. Because, um, I mean, I saw a picture the other day online of a whole bunch of Teslas that were parked there in, in Wellington, that, uh, sorry, in Auckland, <laughs> that had just arrived. Um, there. So it looks like, I mean, it looks like their factory's going OK. But are the big motor uh, manufacturers around the world, are, are they shifting towards electric productions now? Yeah, a number of the global manufacturers are. Uh, but for them, it's just a matter of economies, uh, ramping up production, economies of scale. Uh, they just need to keep lifting that. And the challenge for us, though, is we're at the bottom of the world. We're about, it's something like 0.1% of global sales come to New Zealand. So we're battling on the new side and for the used cars. You know, our biggest import market, Japan, uh, there's 60 countries that try to get their hands on Japan's used fleet. And usually they only pump out about 20,000 EVs a year out of Japan. You've got 60 countries fighting for them. We're just one of those 60. We'd love to get our hands on them. We just don't think we can do it in the time frames that the government set. Come on, Rocket Labs, let's make some. Uh, Matt Foote, <laughs> um, now, just, Matt, I just want to know with you, so we, we've spoken about the pricing and, and how hard they are to get in or whatever. What about the state of infrastructure for charging here? Because I'm thinking... I'm not seeing a lot of charging stations about. Nathan, we're really going to have to ramp that up quite fast if we want to meet this target. Uh, and, you know, it's limited by a whole lot of things. I think you'll find a big change um, in around service stations and the way they look in the next three or four years. But you're still challenged with with suburbs, you know, in Wellington, like Mount Victoria, which has very little off-street parking. How do you charge your EV at night? Where do you put it, et cetera? So, uh, you know... Um, we love selling cars, but we also think that behaviour's got to change. And I think, you know, we're excited by the change because we think there has to be a line in the sand. Uh, people do have to change their behaviour. We you know we need to be using more public transport and cycles, etc. And and we're on the right path with that. They're building the infrastructure, but at the same time, our population is growing, and so we're still going to need cars. Our 
geography and topography of the country is difficult. So um, everyone has different needs, but um, we need to, the government's doing a good job to say, hey, listen, we need to move together on this and how we get people to do that is, is very interesting. I was, yeah, I was wondering about that because even with, with unitary plan for Auckland around the suburb island, I, I've noticed now there's a whole lot of high density housing that's gone in and I, I wondered that, like, you know, there's just not enough place. How do you normally do it? Do you just put in a whack in a long extension cord down the street? How does how would that work? Well, uh, that, that would be that would sound nice, but uh, the health and safety side might be a bit tricky. Oh, there's that. But, yeah. Um, but uh, yes, I think it's going to be more around, you know, getting people to use car sharing. Uh, we can't build cities to have volume cars. That's, that's the key to it. So, um, you know, you look at places like Melbourne where they've actually got a perimeter for public transport and people go to the perimeter and have free public transport. You know, that sort of stuff is going to change the way we think and we do things as well. Um, cars are always going to be an important part of our transport, commerce, etc. And I think people's behaviour around have cars in the past where you know it was a status symbol and it gave them independence etc those values are going to have to change but we're still going to sell as many cars because of the way the country is Craig Pormare from the MTA and car dealer and EV fan Matt Foote. Thanks for listening to the best of First Up. Matewa.